Heavenly Father, as we turn to this really important passage of Scripture, we pray that by the end of this talk, we will have a renewed sense of the fear of the Lord, of the power of the Lord, and indeed of the love of the Lord. So come Holy Spirit and speak to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If we move to the next slide, I don't know if you guys uh, know who this person is. Uh, anyone want to have a wee guess of who this character is? This person? No ideas? All right. Mark Twain. Absolutely. What's Mark Twain famous for? Writing. Writing? Okay. And what's he famous for? Writing? Huckleberry Finn and all that sort of stuff. Well, as well as being an amazing satirist and writer and all that sort of stuff, he's the most quotable person ever. Uh, and he's got some amazing quotes. Never put off till tomorrow what may be done the day after tomorrow just as well. Okay, that's a good one. Move to the next one. Uh, he's got... Keep going. It is better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you are a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. Is a good one. Move to the next one. Um, keep going. It, oh, I love this one. It is not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight and the dog that matters. Isn't that so good? And then if we move to the next one, uh, I think this is... Yes, this is on, featured on the Alpha course, I think, or certainly was the old one. He said, It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Okay, maybe there's an amen from somebody there about that, but that's what Mark Twain said. Well, there's a great story of Mark Twain. Uh, he was accompanied by his wife, uh, on one of his visits to the Holy Land. And they were staying in, uh, in Tiberias on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a moonlit night. The weather was perfect, which gave uh, Mark the romantic idea of his taking his wife for a boat ride on the lake. They went down to the pier and Twain inquired of a man sitting in a rowboat how much he would charge to row them just out onto this lovely still water. Twain was dressed in his usual white suit, white shoes, and white Texas hat. The oarsman, presuming him to be a wealthy rancher from the U.S. of A., said, Well, I guess about $200. Mark Twain thanked him, and as he turned away with his wife in his arm, he was heard to exclaim, Now I know why Jesus walked on the water. There you go. (laughs) So that's why Jesus walked on the water, according to Mark Twain. But the question we have today is a different one. Why were the waters parted? Why were the waters parted in the Red Sea? This is actually mentioned no less than 11 other times in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea. And it's an event so important that five biblical writers in the New Testament refer to it. And this is why I think it's key, if we move to the next slide, um, please, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And those that come in the Bible study on Friday morning will remember this passage from 1 Corinthians. This is what Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. So Paul's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of that. And why? He says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now, what's that saying? Essentially, it's saying that uh, this real event needs to be in the front of our minds. This real event that really happened needs to be at the forefront of our minds, primarily as an example to us. We need to learn from this example of the Red Sea, and we must 
take careful note of what happens here and some of the lessons we need to learn. And if we move to the next slide, there's just a few kind of hopefully memorable things I want you to, to, to take away and a few wee lessons from each of these that I want you to take away today. I want you to take away a wee lesson from the Egyptians' pursuit, uh, from the Israelites' panic, from God's protection, from God's power, and the part played in this story by the people. And if we can see those five Ps, I think we'll have learned some of the lessons from this powerful example uh, of the crossing of the Red Sea. This is more uh, than a children's story, what we have here. We'll begin with the, the pursuing Egyptians, okay? Now, it probably is only a, a few weeks after the, the death of the, the firstborn in Egypt, where, where, the Israel, where the Egyptians were desperate to get the Israelites out. Take whatever you want, just get out, please. Where Pharaoh said, just bless me and go, please. It's probably just a few weeks after this where, where Israel, remember, have moved from Ramesses to Tent Town and, and they're starting to make their way on this route through the wilderness and they're doing this. And at some stage of this, Pharaoh has a bit of amnesia of why on earth he put these people out because of these ten awful plagues that made him so desperate to get them away. And he seems to have forgotten about this. In the King James Version, he he says to his people, why have we let them go? You're thinking, well, there's pretty good reasons why you let them go, Pharaoh. But in in the ESV, it says this, we have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Okay? Isn't that a wonderful description of uh, an oppressive slave regime? We have lost their services. These aren't like cleaners that you pay or something, okay? We have lost their services. And so he readies the chariots. And he gets his, his whole army mobilized to go and bring these guys back, whether, through, uh, whether dead or alive, he's going to bring them back. Now, the very simple thing I want you to see from this pursuit of the Egyptians is this. The enemy does not give up easily. You know, the enemy does not give up easily. If you're seeking to see somebody won for Christ, uh, don't be surprised if, if they seem to be moving towards that and then suddenly they pull back or something in their lives causes them to pull back because the enemy does not give up easily. If you're seeking to to defeat some kind of sin in your life, don't be surprised if you feel like you're getting somewhere and then it all goes wrong because the enemy does not give up easily. If you're trying to advance in some kind of way in the Christian life, following after something that God has asked you to do or you feel you're moved to do, don't be surprised if the enemy comes up against you because he does not give up easily. It's a biblical fact that happens again and again and again. I mean, take it, for example, when Jesus uh, uh, is in the wilderness and the devil multiple times tries to tempt him and multiple times Jesus comes back with Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, each time. And at the end of this, the the devil leaves him. And it's wonderful. Angels come and minister to Jesus after that. 
But here's a thing we must not miss, miss. It says the devil left him. It's good, isn't it? The devil left him. Until an opportune time. In other words, even for Jesus, as he advanced through this you know, setting of the kingdom of God on earth, even Jesus, the devil kept on coming at him. Remember that there will be a pursuit of the Egyptians, that nothing in the kingdom is achieved without resistance. Be aware of that. Be aware of that. And don't be surprised by that when you're trying to move forward with God and for God. Do not be surprised. Lose the idea that Christians talk about all the time, which I personally believe is a load of rubbish. I knew it was God's will because there was an ease with it. It was easy, so it must have been God's will. It's rubbish. The kingdom advance is always difficult. Be aware of that. Secondly, we have, if we move to the next slide, we have the panicking Israelites. Thank you. The panicking Israelites. Did anybody know there was a K in that? It amazed me when I saw there was a K in the word panicking. I'm sure you are all very smart. You knew that. Um, but the panicking Israelites. Um, when, when they were put out of Egypt, um, and, and, and we read about this a little bit as well in verse 8, that the Israelites went out defiantly. Okay? When, when Israel were moving out, they went out defiantly. They went out boldly. They went out with courage. Wasn't that wonderful? Uh, they went out with this great courage. And even when Pharaoh was starting to, to chase them, they were going out defiantly. But verse 10 says something different. It says, When Pharaoh drew, drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Now, they feared greatly when they saw the Egyptians coming. At the end of this reading, they're going to fear the Lord greatly, we see in verse uh, 31. But when they look up and they see these bloodthirsty, hairy, scary Egyptians coming after them, um, they're absolutely terrified. And they're so terrified that they begin to attack Moses and they say, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Now, Egypt's famous for graves, isn't it? Pyramids and uh, lots of graves in Egypt. Um, but they say, were there not enough graves there that we could have died there? And why did you take us into the desert to die? And they say, why didn't you just leave us alone to do our services in Egypt? These services in Egypt. You know, spiritual maturity never hankers for Satan's slavery. There's nothing sadder than when a Christian does what Asaph does in Psalm 73 and he thinks that it would be better not to be a worshipper of Yahweh. There's nothing worse than that when we hanker for slavery again. But that's what these Israelites did. What does the psalmist say? That the blessed believer would rather be a doorkeeper in the courts of God than to sit in the way of sinners. That's what we see here. And I, I wonder, what have Israel been looking at up to now? They've been looking at the, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They've been following after it. But when they hear this rumble behind them, it says they look up. 
and they, they lift up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they fear greatly. Our eyes need to be fixed on the presence of God as we journey. Are our eyes fixed there? Tomorrow night, we'll, we'll, we'll take specific or insignificant amounts of time to fix our eyes on the presence of God. And when you fix your eyes on his presence and don't lift up your eyes to the enemies, it strengthens you. Will we be strengthened? I love uh, one of my favorite scriptures from Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He's the one I'm looking at, at my right hand. The presence of God, not the presence of Egypt panicking Israelites. We can understand why they're panicking, but they shouldn't be because if we move to the next slide, we see that they have, whether or not they realize it, a protecting God. A protecting God. You know, we've we've said, wouldn't it be lovely to have the presence of, of of God in front of us, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Wouldn't it be lovely when we're trying to choose our our university course, that just a wee pillar would would be over it, the right one, wouldn't it? You know, it'd be great. Or we're trying to choose a husband or a wife or whatever, just a wee pillar would appear above their heads or something, you know? It'd be great uh, when you're trying to to choose where to invest your money. Uh, Well, I think I'll do it for here because there's a wee pillar just sort of over Apple or whatever. We'll put our money into that. Okay, wouldn't it be so useful, but yet we've said that it's so much better because we have the cloud and the presence within us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. We have it within us if we would simply listen to the prompting voice of God. Wouldn't it be lovely, though, to have it? The pillar in front of us. But isn't this beautiful? The Bible tells us that when the Egyptians started to pursue and Israel looked up and were terrified, that pillar... That cloud, that fire, moved from, before, from in front of the Israelites to behind them. And it separated the Israelites and the Egyptians, this pillar. So it, it moves from being a, a guidance system to being a protective system. And the presence of God goes in between. In fact, It actually says, then the angel of God who was going before them moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and in behind them. An angel and a pillar moved. Now some commentators believe it's the same thing, but uh, many don't, that an angel and a pillar moved. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who protects us? I, I think if we had eyes to see we would see what Elisha's servant saw. When the king of Aram sent all his armies against him to murder him, and this is in Kings, and, and, and Elisha's servant's panicking. He's looking out the window. He's saying, we're going to die, Elisha. We're going to die. And Elisha says, open his eyes, Lord. And the servant's eyes are opened. And you know what he sees? Chariots of fire coming down the valley. And he he says, there are so many more for us than there are against us. You see, what we can as believers believe 
is that there is more power for us than there is against us. And the protection of God moves in. I think if we had eyes to see, we would realize that we are protected by the presence of God. Guided, but also protected. And it's amazing because see this cloud that moves in between the Israelites and the Egyptians, protecting them. And think about this, this is nighttime that all of this happens. On one side of the cloud, and I don't know how you would even depict this in a picture, but in one side of the cloud, there was fire to light the way for the Israelites. On the other side, there was terrible darkness that, that threw, in a sense, the Egyptians into, into total blackness and confusion. That's what's happening. Other parts of the Bible tells us that there was, there was thunder, there was lightning. I think it was all on the side of the Egyptians because Israel was being protected and guided still. This is the God we have. A God who protects us. And not only in Exodus chapter 14, but this very day, we have been accompanied by angels and by the presence of God protecting us. Maybe some of us have been aware of that. It doesn't have to be in a dramatic way, but in an unseen way, it is just as dramatic. We move to a powerful God on our next slide. A powerful God. A powerful God. Israel are standing in front of a huge sea. Now remember, it's never happened before, this opening up of waters in the Bible. Joshua's going to experience it in about 40 years' time, but it's never happened before. They're standing beside a huge sea. Just picture yourself standing beside a sea. And you're standing beside a sea, and the, the cloud and all that, and the Egyptians and all that, and you can hear them coming and all of that, and you think, how on earth is God going to save us from this? I mean, how low down your thoughts would be that he would open up the sea. Like, we read it now and we think, oh, it's just going to open up the sea and they're going to walk through. But how low down? I mean, you would, you would think it was more likely that the lightning would kill them or, or the hail would come down on the Egyptians or something or, or they'd be lifted up in a cloud and brought over. How unlikely, if you were standing beside a huge body of water, would it be that, actually, I think God's going to just make it go like that? Sound likely? Of course it's not. What a powerful God we worship. And you know, folks, here's the sad thing. Even the church struggled to believe this story. Okay? Even the church. And if you opened up commentaries uh, from all over the, uh, the world and for the last you know, number of hundred years, what you would see is they're, they're desperate to find, how could this be? How could we demystify this story? Surely God can't have opened up the sea. And there's a whole lot of people in our world, theologians in our world, who want to take away the power from the gospel. That's the sad thing. And what some people believe uh, and they've written about is, well, there's a part of the sea which is you know, just a bit marshy and there's only a few inches of water and, and maybe that was dried up and, and Israel moved through it in a few inches of water and, and that's maybe what happened. Okay? Now, folks, I want to contend to you that that would still be a miracle. Because the entire army of Egypt managed to drown in those two inches of water. Okay? That would still be a mighty miracle. That'd be nearly a bigger miracle, wouldn't it? No. What we read about here is that it's a real miracle that has never been forgotten. 
that Moses was told to lift up your staff and that the water would become walls and they'd be able to walk through that space. What a thing. King Canute tried to do this, didn't he? To hold back the waves and he couldn't do it. But our powerful God was able to lift up that body of water and create walls. What an incredible thing. I don't know if you've got any children's books at home, but as they're walking through uh, in a lot of the children's books, there's kind of fish just floating behind the wall as they walk through. And I always have this wee image of a shark just swimming through the sea one day and suddenly bonk off his front of his face because he, he basically swims into a wall. Okay? But wall they walk through. And think about that. As they walk through, imagine the, the sense of awe they must have had. You know, the, the, the cloud above them. The, the water held up on either side around them. Surrounded by the miracle of God. Surrounded by the presence of God. And so are we in salvation. Imagine, imagine uh, in that three million people in the Israelites, there was a few psychiatrists or counselors among them, okay? Imagine. And imagine as they're walking along, they're, they're having a wee chat with their, their counselor or their psychiatrist, and, and somebody's saying, I can't sleep. You know, I really can't sleep because I know we're, we're out of Egypt, but uh, every time I try and go to sleep, I picture one of the Egyptians coming after me, okay? And sure enough, there actually were Egyptians coming after them, so this biggest fear was true. How would they be released from that biggest fear that they ever had? Well, here's what God says. Remember, they're, they're looking at the cloud and then they lift up their eyes and they look at the Egyptians and they're fearful. Here's what God says. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. You know, God's doing something really beautiful here. He, he's freed them from uh, the, the, the power of, of sin. He's freed them from the power of these slave masters. You know, and now what he's going to do is he's going to free them from the very presence of, of these slave masters. And that's what he wants to do for us. Do you realize that the only power the devil ever had over you has been disarmed by the cross? Uh, We're told in the New Testament that when, when Jesus nailed our sins to the tree, he led away the powers of evil. He embarrassed them and he disarmed them. And yeah, we have to live with the presence of them, but one day, even their very presence will be destroyed. Our powerful God will leave death and fear and sin and sickness and addiction dead on the shore, just like these Egyptians. The, the problem that you see today, you'll never see again, is the promise. What a promise that is. Finally, the pursuing Egyptians 
the panicking Israelites, the protecting God, the powerful God, and finally the part played by the people. Israel cry out to God, they moan about wishing they'd never left Egypt, and then Moses answers in the most profound, incredible way. He says in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. God, uh, Moses has seen God move ten times and more. And he has a theology of the miraculous. He has a theology of deliverance. He expects deliverance and he believes in grace alone. He knows that he's not got the talent or the ability to do it himself. And he's seen how God has done it. He's seen that the Israelites maybe don't even deserve it, but God has done it. He believes in grace alone. He says, don't be afraid. And he says that because he knows that God is good. He says, stand firm. That's a faithful waiting and expectation. He says, you'll see the miracle. The Lord will do the fighting. You need only be silent. What did the people do to get out through the Red Sea? Nothing apart from a willingness to walk in a straight line, which is more rare than you would imagine when it comes to the people of God. All they have to do is walk through. Now, the only other person, if we move to the next slide, involved in this, with a part to play in this, is Moses. God says to him, you have to lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. The only person that does really anything is Moses, and he just lifts up his staff to open the sea, and then to close the sea. That's the only person who who plays a part. Now, Moses isn't a perfect person, but he's the one person that plays the part. He's one of the people, and he's friends with God. And so he plays this part of lifting up the staff. Remember what 1 Corinthians 10 told us, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. That's interesting, isn't it? Moses, the man in the middle, friends with God and one of us, was the the mediator of what happened at the Red Sea. He was the the man in the middle. But he's only an example, a metaphor, uh, something to help us understand that one day there would be a true mediator. Not just one of us and friends with God, but one of us and God himself. And that Jesus would stand before an uncrossable chasm And instead of lifting up a staff, he'd be lifted up on a cross. And because of what that mediator did, we would walk through. You know, there's no mention of of who had the most faith out of the Israelites as they walked through the sea. They all walked through the sea, and it all relied on the mediator holding up his staff. 
And so we need to be the same. We need to be people who, who stand in before the chasm of sin and death, trust in the one who is our mediator, Jesus Christ. That's what we have to do. I love a story about the, the Wesleys, uh, Charles and John Wesley. Um, and one night, Charles and John Wesley were with their friends, and they were, they were wild fellas, these, because they were reading aloud from Luther's, Luther's commentary on Galatians. All right? They were having a wild night. Okay? Uh, and one of them, one of their friends, he wasn't a Christian, was a guy called William Holland. And when they read these words that Luther wrote in this just introduction to Galatians in a commentary. These are the words. What then? Have we nothing to do? No, nothing but accept Christ's work. Have we nothing to do? No, nothing. Just be still. And when William Holland heard that, we have nothing to do, just be still. He was converted because he realized it was all because of Jesus. Now, if you think just once more about those words that Moses spoke, this just sort of blew my mind this week as I read this. Fear not. As you stand on the edge of uh, your sin and of death and of hell, the deserve punishment for all of us, it says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Okay, see the salvation of the Lord. So what does it say? It says, don't be afraid. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, folks, that word salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua. Okay, so don't be afraid. Stand firm and watch salvation. Watch Yeshua. The, the, the name that comes from that word will happen again in 40 years where they will stand and not be afraid in front of this time the Jordan and Joshua, which is Yeshua, will see them through into the promised land. But what's the Greek version of Yeshua? Jesus. And so how do you be saved? What is the gospel in Exodus 14? How are you saved? Well, here's how you're saved. You stand firm, you watch, and you look at Jesus, the mediator, and you look at him, and really, we have to lay our deadly doings down, in a sense, and we just have to stop, and we have to say, there's nothing in me that will get me through this Red Sea to glory, but I'll stand and I'll look at Yeshua. I'll see salvation in Jesus and I'll walk through. Let's stand together. And just in the place of prayer, Lord, we we know that there's going to have to be resistance for us to advance in the kingdom. So, Lord, we thank you that although we panic at the sight of difficulty, of Egyptians coming after us, 
we thank you that we have a protecting God. Lord, I want to pray for anybody here uh, that's going through really difficult times who feels attacked at this moment, whether through illness or through nightmares or through anxious feelings or has been bereaved or is struggling at work or whatever our particular issue might be. Uh, we just want to ask for the, the protecting presence of God to be over them. We want to ask for the angels to surround them. We pray that as they walk through this, it would be a wall of God's presence on either side and a cloud above them. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we invite you to come very close to your child and protect them and guide them, please. Lord, we thank you that your cloud to them is not a dark cloud, but it is a cloud to give them light. So, Lord, give them light as they walk this difficult path. Lord, we want to thank you that you are a powerful God. Lord, I pray that we would not lose a sense of your power. Lord, we know that there is that liberal voice in the world that really says that the gospel can't be true, uh, that these miracles cannot be true. We believe in a powerful God. We believe in a God that can heal. We believe in a God that can raise the dead. We believe in a God that can do abundantly more than all we ask, seek, or imagine. So Lord, build faith in your church over this powerful God. Lord, we want to say that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to your church. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us afresh. And Lord, we thank you that the part of people is significant but inconsequential. That we get to play, we get to be part of it, we get to lift up staffs and see beautiful things happen, we get to lay hands on and see wonderful things happen, but ultimately it's all because of Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that we need to spend so much more time as we'll spend tomorrow night being still and watching. The Lord fights for us. The Lord died for us. The Lord rose for us and the Lord reigns. Holy Spirit, build your church. Lift your people. Increase our confidence. Lord, let things that are happening in our world where we see revival breaking out and wonderful things happening, let it, let it feed our souls to believe in great things to expect great things and to attempt great things for Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's worship in this place.